Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to number 16. As we look at one big gulp, and if you've read the chapter preview in, in, in ahead of time, as I encourage you to do each week, you would understand what the one big gulp is. Now last week we read that Moses sent out 12 spies to spy out the land, to check it out. The 10 of them gave a bad report filled with pessimistic exaggerations, while two of the men offered a report filled with optimistic expectations. The first one, report exposed the people's unbelief in the person and the promises of God that was fueled by fear. They did not believe in the person and the promises of God. He was not big enough to take on and give them what he had promised. The second port demonstrated a strong belief in God and that un- or the, a strong belief in God that was fueled by his promises. They recognized that God is able to do that which he has commanded us to do or what he has promised us. Now, unbelief in God, whether you were the children of Hebrew of that time or whether you're here today, unbelief in the promises and the goodness of God brings forth judgment and death. While belief in God, trusting in Him, recognizing His goodness, brings reward and blessings. And you and I should understand that by now. If not, that's what Scripture is teaching us there in Numbers 15. But this week, as we go to number 16, we're once again going to read of some plaints and grumbling. It's filled with jealousy and doubt once again. This seems to be a never-ending story with these Hebrew children. Time and time again, they refuse to trust the goodness and the wisdom in God's calling, in God's plan, and His purposes for His children. Numbers chapter 16, it's the first three verses are going to be on your monitor, but I encourage you to grab your Bible once again and join with me as we follow through this passage. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abram, the sons of Eli, and On, the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel. 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, and every one of them and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Father, we come before you and we ask for wisdom. These complaints, this grumblings, it seems to be so monotonous and mundane time and time again. But yet, Father, expose our wicked hearts in which we ourselves, maybe not in the same words, but question your goodness, doubt your wisdom, neglect your word. So be with us as we share this portion of Scripture. We thank you for it. Lord, may it guide our hearts as we examine and search for instructions for us today. Be with me as I speak. Let us hear these words. And most importantly, Father, may your spirit begin to do the work that we all may respond how you call us to this morning. We praise in Christ's name. 
Amen. Now, as we remarked at the beginning, Moses is faced with another set of complaints. This time, it's dealing with some religious and civil issues. Moses and Aaron are confronted by a quintet, five men who succeed in riling up the camp in rebellion against Yahweh. Time and time again, you'll have to see this, is when people are complaining and grumbling, it doesn't just stay with them. You've experienced this, right? It seems to very easily grab a following. Before you know it, others are involved in it. And once again, God calls out the rebels for their sin and he vindicates Moses, Aaron, and even himself. Now this vindication includes quick judgment and punishment that demonstrate God's wrath, his poverty, and his sovereignty. As we come to the end of Numbers chapter 16, over 14,000 people will forfeit their lives in this rebellion. And this rebellion, like others before them, find their complaint focused on a person or an issue, but in reality, as you and I understand, all grumbling and complaining is really grumbling and complaining against the Creator, the Almighty Creator of the universe. It's against Yahweh. Now, for those of you who not, maybe not been in our services before or not uh, for a while, many times in the Old Testament, you'll see Lord, the capital L-O-R-D. That's the word Yahweh. And so many times when we're going through the Old Testament, that is God's personal name. To be honest, we ought to use Yahweh a little bit more because that's his personal name. It means I am. And so when you hear me, I'm going to be using Yahweh very synonymously with the Lord or with God. So if that's kind of confusing for Yahweh, that's his personal name. And you and I should use that. This time, the complaints and grumbling as we come back to, the, to, this, to this event, this, this complaint and grumblings are focused. Now listen to this. <clears throat> it's not about food. It's not about water. Water is going to be coming up again next week. Uh, this is not about uh, some other thing, but it's about uh, the sovereignty of God, particularly God's sovereignty in his calling of people, in his plan for people, and his purpose for his children. Now, as we look at it, I want to share with you three complaints. Here's not, they're going to be here on the monitor if you'd like to take notes. But there's going to be three complaints, and they focus on the sovereignty of God. The first one, the first, plain, first complaint, concerns God's sovereignty over his calling of his children. So the first one is over God's sovereignty over his calling. Now, Korah, as you look in there, he's the first character that we come into. He's named in number 16, and his charge against Moses and Aaron was found in the second part of verse 3. If you're there in your Bible, he goes to Moses and says, You have gone too far, for in all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So now this is not untrue. Just like today, each and every one of us is part of the priesthood of God. His complaint is that the Lord is among all of us. Why then are you exalting yourself above the assembly? So he's coming here and says, why is my calling different than yours? Why do you get the preeminence of being over and speaking for God? It seems that Korah is jealous of Aaron and son's priesthood. Mainly their exalted positions as those that would perform the sacrifice and their caretaker role in the tabernacle. Now, Korah is also a Levite. He's a cousin of Aaron. And as you can see this, God has given them a special instruction of what to do. But he's like, this is not good enough for me. I think I can do what Aaron does. And to be honest, I think I can do it better than Aaron. Have you ever had thoughts like that at work, at home? 
in other places? Yeah, we all do this. Korah is from the tribe of Levi. He's from the clan of the Kohites who had the responsibility. Now, their responsibility is actually very important. Their responsibility was carrying all the furnishes of the tabernacle while it was in transit as they were moving around. They would take care of the altar. They would take care of all the, the golden uh, candlesticks and all the special furnishings. And they were, they were allotted this calling, their calling, their responsibility was for this special thing. They would have to carry them by hand. In essence... They are complaining, and this may sound like something that you would never experience in anything, is that they're complaining that their role is not big enough. It's not important enough. It's not preeminent enough. They feel that they have been taken advantage of, that they become nothing more than just human donkeys for the children or for the sons of Aaron. However, they're calling from God. And their responsibility that was given to them by Yahweh was actually considered very important. Now, the other children of Levi actually had dirtier jobs. They carried the, pen, the, the tents and the, and the carpets and the curtains and all these types of things. They at least are carrying something much more important than that. While the other Levites carried the tent poles, the coverings, and the other mundane things of the tabernacle, they were called to personally carry the special furnishings and found inside the tabernacle their role listen to this their role was so special that Moses was given special instructions to not let this clan die out in numbers chapter 4 if you want to turn back quickly to that numbers 4 verse 18 Yahweh instructs Moses, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohites, now remember Korah would have been part of this, do not let them be destroyed from among the Levites. You must protect them. Why? Because they deal, uh, but he goes on, but deal with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. In other words, they were to be protected from even coming near the things of God. Aaron and his son shall go out and point their tasks, but these things you must make sure to protect them that they may not die by going in and touching the things of God. And not only just touching, but looking. So in other words, their job was they could not come in until Aaron and his sons had actually wrapped up the candlesticks, wrapped up all the, uh, the special basins and things and the tools. They could not even look on them. But God is saying, do not let them die. Do not let them die out. Protect them both from me and from themselves. They would also go on to serve as doorkeepers and musicians in the temple back in David and Solomon. So they wind up actually having a very good position and calling. Yet Korah was blinded. And he could not see that his rebellious attitudes and actions stems from his envy and jealousy and really his self-ambition to do more than what he was called to. Now, this self-ambition and jealousy affected not only him, <coughs> but it affected other Levites. Look with me at Numbers chapter 16. Look at verse 8. Moses would go on to say, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? So what's their special calling? To be separated. They're sanctified. They have a greater job to bring you near to himself, to do the service in the tabernacle of God and to stand before the congregation and minister them. Now he's speaking not only to Korah, but those other 250 Levites that are joining him. 
They're saying, yeah, why, why don't we get to do what Aaron and sons get to do? And God says, wait a second, haven't I pulled you out among the two million people that you're surrounded by? Do you not have a special enough job? Look what he goes on in verse 10. And that, you, that, uh, uh, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? See, they wanted something greater. They wanted, they wanted to be exalted among their kinmen. Therefore, it's against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. There's where we get. They think that Aaron and his sons are the issue. They think the issue is with Moses, that Moses had appointed them kind of a donkey type job and something that is just mundane and not as special. But yet what we see here is the scripture tells us that, no, your problem is with Yahweh. It's with the Lord. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? He finishes off. Once again, Moses points out that it's against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. You and I have to see that the first complaint concerns God's calling on our lives, our giftings, our talents, our abilities, those things that God has given them to do in us as well. Now, the second complaint is going to be centered on God's sovereign plan, his plan for their life. And now that's brought by the two brothers, Abram and Dathan, along with their companion named On. Now, the four men were from the tribe of Reuben, and that was situated right by the camp of Korah. And this complaint, and they used this complaint and this riling up by, of Korah to then to, to rail out and to, to pretty much throw out their own laundry list of things that they have a problem with. And we find it in Numbers chapter 16, verse 13. Follow along. They say, now it is a small thing that you brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey. Again, this is the, their mindset. You brought us out to kill us in the wilderness, that you also make yourself a prince over us. Now imagine that. Not only have you brought us and delivered us to Egypt, but it's only so you can make yourself a king and then make us die in the wilderness. Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey. It's almost like a politician here. Nor have you given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. This is when Moses said, listen, you need to come up and we need to talk about this. He said, no, we're not going to. Who are you to be made prince over us? Not only that, you haven't even done what you said you were going to do. It reminds me of a story that happened last week. Thank God that we're not in Mexico at this point. Uh, there's a mayor who promised to do some, build a road in this Mexican town. And the people have been complaining. This is a true story. It just happened last week. They've been complaining against him to do the road. And he hasn't. So a group of men ran, ran, uh, ran into his office, grabbed him, hooked him up to the back of their pickup, and dragged him down the street uh, back and forth until finally the military came and rescued the mayor. Could you imagine it happening here in the United States? How many of you are secretly saying, hey, I got one I like to do that to yeah. They had a quarrel with Moses' leadership. They did not believe he's followed through on his promises. He hasn't kept up his part of the bar bargain. He hasn't fully delivered them from Egypt. He's only brought them into the desert land, and then they haven't gone into the promised land. Of course, like most people, they're blinded by their own failure to follow Moses and to believe the report of Joshua and Caleb. Remember, this is just takes place right after. 
They don't see that it was their own decision and the curse of God when they did not believe. Last week, we learned that the whole camp refused to accept the good report of the land. And they were afraid to confront the inhabitants of the land and take possession of what God had given them. But yet here they are, they're taking their own belief, their own curse, their own consequences, and they're putting it on someone else. How silly, but yet you've probably seen this happen yourself. Now, you and I remember and know that God's sovereign plan was to deliver the Hebrew children from the Egyptian slavery and to bring them into Canaan, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. This was God's plan that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And now here they are, 400 years, and they're just within reach of this land. However, as we saw last week, their sin brought God's wrath and judgment. And they're cursed to wander the desert for 40 years. Those, those that were 20 years at the time would never see the land. Yet they foolishly blame Moses for their troubles. They can't even see their own sin and culpability in their circumstances. No, they want to blame Moses' plan. But what we need to really see, it's God's plan. Like many for us today, they look for an easy target instead of looking squarely at who's to blame, which is themselves. In response, Yahweh calls this quintet and his followers to assemble before him at the tabernacle. And he declares this, and this you might remember from Korah's land, or, or thing. he says that we are part of God's. God himself says that God will show who is his and who is holy and who can bring, near, bring him near to him. Now the Reubenites refuse to appear. So Yahweh sends Moses to confront them at their front tent door, so to speak. And you remember, this is a group of people that are living kind of all together. Now look at Numbers 16, verse 28. And we read of the big gulp. Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. In other words, he says, if they die a natural death or by an accident that just happens to all of them, let you know that you're right, that, that the Lord has not sent me. But verse 30, but if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth. And if the ground swallows them up along with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then, then you shall know that these men have despised whom? The Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking in verse 31, all these, these words, we see here, we read, that the ground under them split apart. In verse 32, and the earth opens its mouth and swallowed them up with their household and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. One big gulp. In verse 33, what's amazing, not only does the earth swallow them up, not only does all their tents and their family and everything they own go swallowed up into the ground. Look at verse 33. So they, uh, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And then look at, and the earth closed back up. Like a giant mouth opening up, taking one big gulp and shutting. And they perished from the mist 
of the assembly. You think that got somebody's attention? I hope so. You're actually going to see that it didn't. Because these people are just stiff, necked, hard, headed. Not only did the earth swallow them up in one grief, but we read that the 250 men, if that was not enough, the 250 Levites that were offering the incense came and were consumed by fire. So some men died, and men and women and children died by the earth swallowing, and then 250 of them died by fire. Now, I, would, I don't know about you, but I would have to say that that's probably something that's not normal. I think that shows God's sovereign plan. Moses was his man. He called them out of Egypt. He delivered them from Pharaoh. He delivered them through all things. And his plan was to take them into the promised land. But yet they refused his plan. And then complained about it. Now the third, third complaint about God's sovereignty is on the purposes, his purposes, the purposes of God. Look with me at verse 41 of number 16. But on the next day, remember you just said you think that got someone by his attention. But on the next day, the congregation of the people, what? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now what's their complaint this time? You have killed the people of the Lord. What is it with these people? They can't seem to take a hint. I think there's been enough plagues and destruction and fire to make me say, you know what? I think I'm going to just follow what Moses has to say. Moses, where should I sit? Moses, what should I eat? Moses, where should I go? But these people have the audacity now to come before Moses and to say, you have killed the people of God. They are so hard-headed. And their hearts are full of rebellion. That even over the death of over 250 people, plus the sons or the, uh, the, uh, the sons of Korah and on and this, so on and so forth, does not stop them from complaining against Moses and an extension against Yahweh. This time, their complaint is on the purpose of God, mainly the punishment that He exacted on their rebellious cousins. Why have you killed them? What was the purpose of doing that? They believe that the punishment is too harsh. It's too unfair. And they focus on Moses and Aaron as mediators of Yahweh. But again, Yahweh wastes no time in demonstrating his unpleasure with their continued complaining and grumbling. When we read that God sends a plague nail now to consume those who continue to question, to doubt the goodness and the wisdom of God and his purposes of, 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 his, of his justice and his righteousness. It says that God sends a plague to consume them. And if you're in verse uh, chapter 16, look at verse 19. We read in verse 19 that those who died in the plague were 14,700. Besides those who died in the fear of Korah. So 14,700 people perished by a plague. 250 died by fire. It doesn't give us how many of Korah's family died. Now what's interesting is that later you'll see in Deuteronomy that Korah himself, Korah himself, or I'm sorry, uh, Korah's sons did not die, but Korah did. 
That's quite a few numbers of people. What a national tragedy. That's a day of mourning. They're cursed to wander the desert for 40 years. Now their rebellion, rebellious attitudes lead to needless loss as they complain and question and doubt the goodness of God in his calling, in his plan, in his purposes. They rebelled against him. Now before you and I become too harsh in our opinion about their attitudes and actions, we, we may say, what stupid people, how idiotic, what is wrong with them? You and I need to consider how you and I doubt and question the goodness and wisdom of God in his calling and his plan and his purposes for our lives and in our lives. Before we do that, let's consider what I mean by the sovereignty of God or what we should say scripture means when we talk about the sovereignty of God. When scripture declares that sovereign of God, it means as we see here on the monitor, and you may want to write this down, you need to understand that, that God is the supreme authority and that all things are under his control. The authority of God, the supreme authority, means that God is the supreme authority and is all things are under his control. Now, when we say the word all, this is one of those cases where all means all. And that's all it means. All is all things. Those things that are created, those things that are not. The things that are visible, the things that are invisible. All things, even the mundane things of your life, your very actions, your calling, his plan, his purposes are under his sovereignty, his supreme call. The supreme authority means that God controls all things at all times in all places. But more specifically to our theme today, it includes this. And this is what I want to get. If you pay attention, please get this down. It includes my speaking of yours. It includes your gifting. Those things that you can do, your talents and your abilities. Yes, there are skills that you have acquired, but yet God has still given you the ability to do those. Those things are in his supreme authority. It's your giftings, your talents, your abilities, your skills. There is nothing that you have or that you can do that has not been given to you by God. It could be a great intellect. It could be a strong back with strong hands. It could be your height. It could be uh, your singing ability. It could be just your creativity. All these things is God's gift to you. Those are God's sovereign callings to you. What you have, someone else may not. We see this in Psalms 139, if you ever doubt it. He says, everything was, was written before the foundations of the earth. Great verse, by the way, passage that tells us that God has written everything. He's the one who has decided. So when I, if I get to this point where I'm struggling with, oh, I wish I could speak like John MacArthur. I wish I had the passion of John Piper. I wish I could speak with the authority of a Steve Lawson. God says, I can't give you all those things, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you an audience that doesn't know the difference. Thank you. You are a blessing and an answer of prayer. Thank you for allowing me to have that small joke. But you and I need to understand that. But it also means this. Listen to this. Now, this is going to get, this is going to get diffi more difficult. 
God's sovereign authority means that He has defined what your family and who your family is going to be. It determines your geography, where you are going to live and where you grow up, and your biography, all that it is that makes you who you are. You probably were a child and said, oh, I wish I was born to different parents. Oh, I wish I was born in a different part of the state. I wish I wasn't born in Illinois. Well, I shouldn't say that. I love Illinois. I'm glad he has moved my geography over here to where it's a little bit nicer and warmer most of the time of the year. But you know, you hear these types of things. You know, my heart goes out for those that are in countries that do not experience the freedoms that I get to experience here. I understand why people surge to our borders and come because their geography by God's sovereign will has put them in a disadvantage. So there is a sense in which I have a privilege that does not come because who I am, but because of God's sovereign choice. So that ought to bring you and I some humbleness, humility, when we want to shake our fist politically at some things. And some of you can shake your head because you know you may have been born somewhere else, your parents, and he's brought you here. This is not of our own doing. So who my family is, who my geography is, my biography, and all the things that I hate about my biography comes from God's sovereign grace, but yet all the wonderful things as well. Have you come to, I lost the word, have you come to accept that? Maybe you still struggle. Why didn't God make me taller with fuller hair? If God would give me an, uh, an accent, our church would be double its size. I believe it was. I would start an accent, but I would wind up with three or four accents, uh, accents at the different time. I wish I could speak another language, but I barely speak English, as most of you know. Okay, here's where it gets tough. Because many of you say, okay, I trust God. I don't doubt his wisdom. But my heart now is heavy because I know many of you may struggle with this and are in much more difficult places than I am. But God's supreme authority means that God controls all things at all times and all places, especially when it includes my circumstances, both good and evil. You know, when I look at my life, my life has been fairly mundane. I, we haven't had much sickness in our lives. We haven't had much difficulties in life. Things weren't always easy. Maybe my life was easier than yours. Maybe it was more difficult than yours. But some of you are going through some circumstances that I would not wish on an enemy. And God's sovereign choices, I don't mean to offend anyone here, but he's allowed you to suffer loss through a miscarriage, through a parent, through a young child. He's had you suffer loss financially and in your own health. He's had you to go through things that, that are difficult where someone has hurt you in such a way that that pain is still searing your heart today. Maybe sin and sinful choices. Still, when you go to close your eyes at night, you can't get away from it. It may be under the blood of Christ, but yet Satan still takes it and attacks you with it. Rich or poor, sickness and health, we use that in weddings and marriage. 
God is sovereign in that. Let me tell you, God will speak through that pain. God uses that for his glory. And maybe the struggle that you're having today is that you are questioning and doubting the goodness of God, the wisdom of God in your circumstances. I haven't asked for this. God, you have not lived up to your bargain. I accepted you. Why is my life like this? It's the cry that goes throughout many people. And unfortunately, we have pastors and preachers and songs and worship songs that are teaching you that the gospel is if you accept Jesus, everything in your life will be fine. And let me tell you, that's when the troubles begin. That's when you fully understand the circumstances, both good and evil, in your life. Then lastly, another one that we struggle with. We just talked about this in our group this uh, last Friday. It's God's sovereign decision and plan for our eternal destiny. Even that isn't up to us. As God chooses us, draws us, and calls us to himself. Now you need to remember that this rebellion by Korah and his associates was recorded as an example for our instruction. Remember that phrase. We've been using that over and over in numbers. That's what the Bible tells us why these things take place. You may be here this morning and you're questioning the wisdom of God and you're doubting his goodness by complaining about his calling, his plan, and his purposes for your life. You're wondering like they are, why I should be able to do more. Why can't I be more or have more? You're wondering what's going on and you want to make an accusation against God. Now, you may be sitting there this morning and you say, I am not questioning the goodness or the wisdom of God, but yet you still struggle with who I am or what I do or where I'm going. Those are still things that are in your mind that are still unsettled. You're not alone. But as children of God, we must understand That all that we are and all that we will be is under the sovereign control, and say an amen after this, under a wise, good king. Okay, there's a few. Okay, so we need to come come here this morning because I think maybe we need this. We need to understand this. We need to accept this. My, my, My heart's desire is for you not to have a heart of complaint or a charge against a good, wise king. Don't take my word for it. Take a look at scripture. It's full of men and women who served God's calling and his plan and their purpose in life. And I'm worried if I'm going to finish this morning. Some of these people served under horrific circumstances and they endured horrendous consequences. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David, Daniel, Peter, John, and Paul all served God in their generation and they died. Yes, there were times that they doubted the wisdom and goodness of the Almighty, but in the end, they remained faithful. Let's consider for a moment the best example of the one who's faithful, who faithfully submitted to the sovereign will of God's calling and plan on his life. Scripture paints this, this, this individual with a beautiful picture of faithful obedience through his life, death, and resurrection. You and I know him as Jesus We read in the scripture that Jesus faithfully submitted to the sovereign will of the Father's calling on his life. 
Jesus was called to seek and to save that was lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to serve others, and to destroy the works of the devil. God's plan for his life was to suffer and to die for you and I. He was called, he was, God's plan for his life was to bear the wrath of God as the penalty of sin. We use many times uh, during the Christmas time that Jesus was born to die and to die a murderer or a thief's death. But also God's plan for Jesus' life was to earn our righteousness through his active and passive obedience. God had a purpose, though, in doing this for Jesus. See, God doesn't call you and give you a plan for your life without a purpose. Why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this? The first purpose for Jesus' life was to demonstrate God's love. But God showed his love for us while we were sinners. Christ, what? Died for us. To show us the love of the Father. You want to know what love is? Who sings that, by the way? I want to know what love is. Is that Forner? Who is that? Yeah, come on, come on. You guys know. You guys are being shy. You'll say it, yeah. Well, love is God sending his son. It's a demonstration. Also to reconcile us back to the Father. That was his purpose of sending his son. And lastly, to unite all things to himself. To bring us into reconciliation. And what a wonderful example as Christ accomplishes the Father's call, the Father's plan and purpose for his life. You and I are the direct beneficiaries of his passive and active obedience. Jesus is obedient to the Father's sovereign will, making not only possible, but a surety that you and I can receive all that the Father has in store for us. But hit there. What I want to get to and I want to close to is God's plan and purpose and calling for you and I. Because maybe you're here and you're struggling. If you are, let me bring you back to what you and I should see is the cross. Now, if you were a child of uh, one of the Hebrew children back in the days of Korah, you might say, whoa, I, I shouldn't complain against God's calling, against God's plan and God's purpose because I don't want the earth to use me as its big gulp. I don't want to be swallowed up. I don't want the swift judgment of Christ. But God's calling and plan and purpose for our life finds itself at the, the cross. And you and I need to look back because just as God used Jesus in this way, he's using us. So let's go to it. Here it's on the screen. The king's sovereign plan for you and I. Now he does have an individual calling, an individual plan, and an individual purpose for each and every one of us. But yet there is one corporately as well. And the first one is that the king's call for Christians is to serve God to serve our fellow Christians and others. God has given us spiritual gifts so that we may build each other up. We are not to be like Korah, use our special gifts and abilities and calling for our own purpose. It's not to build ourselves up to make us more preeminent, but to serve God. There's this thing that's going on. I don't have time to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, you know, There's been this thing with pastors. We've been having this discussion of whether or not Sunday should be considered a work day. 
Now, some pastors, I see it is. I mean, last week was, I was here over six hours doing quite a bit. But I'm of the opinion that, that Sunday is not a work day for me. And here's why I say that. Because, one, I understand that there are many of you who come and volunteer your time for the worship team, nursery, Sunday school, so on. And you work during the week to, to prepare that. But for me, you pay me to study during the week. But when I come here on Sunday and I begin to open the doors and I begin to, to get prepared for Sunday school and for worship and for preaching, that's me just using my spiritual gifts that God has given me. He's given me the gifts of help and of mercy and of teaching. Yeah, you pay me to study, but when I come here, I'm using my spiritual gifts just as it is your calling to use your spiritual gifts. And that's what I want to encourage you. See, here's the good news. God has given every disciple of Christ a spiritual gift. Here's the bad news. Have you even used yours today? Or are you just coming in and consuming? Who have you built up and edified other than yourself today? That comes in a myriad of ways. And by the way, that's not just talking about here. That's talking about during the week. Encouraging, lifting others up. There's a couple here that's pretty much taken on by, by, by nothing other than just being good examples of a Christian marriage where people are now just going to them for counseling. That's not something we set up. It's not something uh, I said, well, you know, let's do this. I have thought of it, but it's just happened. Why? Because they can see that that's their gifting. And so I'm encouraging them. I'm not saying, wow, they're not coming to me. Man, well... Praise God, our gifts are for all. So God's calling on for me is to serve you in this way. Number two, the king's plan is for Christians to make us like Christ. You know this verse. You ought to have it memorized. Romans 8, 28. It's here on the monitor. We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. Some of you have a lot in life a lot in life, I mean, you have been given a circumstance in your life that I probably could not handle. But God's given it to you. And it's for your good. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is God's plan for my life? What does he want me to do to make you more like Christ. So Christ has brought you into your circumstance, into your family, into your location. He has given you troubles. He has given you temptations. He has given you struggles so that you may come and be like his son. Everything that comes in your life, as drastic and as terrible as me, or as easy and as smooth as your life might have been, is to make you more like him. Those he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those he justified, he is glorified. You may find yourself questioning and doubting the goodness of God by complaining about your biography, your circumstance, and your position in life. However, everything in your life is part of God's sovereign plan to make you like Christ. And it is for your good and his glory. Do not be like the children of Reuben, Reuben who rebelled at God's plan. 
You may not understand it right now, but you may be suffering much for Christ's sake, but take heart. God is working in and through you for your good and his glory. And that comes to the third promise or third purpose for Christians. And that's to glorify himself and to do his good. What is the purpose of all these things that I've gone through? What is the purpose of it all? It's to glorify God. Revelation 21 says this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and the sea was no more. A holy city called New Jerusalem comes down and it was from heaven prepared as a bride for his adorned for her husband. Listen to this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with me. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What is God's purpose in your life? To draw you to himself, to reconcile that he may be your God and that you may be his. That's the purpose of your life. Not everyone has that purpose. Some purpose is to die and spend eternity without the Father, without the presence of Christ. Yet God says, my purpose for you is to draw you to myself. Never doubt the goodness and wisdom of God. His purpose in all things is to glorify himself and to do good towards us. Now, I know that, in the, that it is hard in the midst of trials and troubles and temptations to see the end game. Our eyes are blinded by suffering and the circumstances and time. However, you and I must, must realize that we have a loving Father who loves us and is holding us in his hands at all times. Do not be like the Hebrew children who rail against the wisdom of God's choices in their life, whether it's the plan, the purposes, or the callings. But praise with him, to God be the glory, great things he has done. With every head bowed and every head closed, the worship team comes up. So as you close, let me ask you, what ways are you questioning the wisdom of God? In what ways are you doubting God's goodness. Is it in his calling, the way he has gifted you, the talents, the abilities? Are you like Korah, desiring more? Or how about the plan for your life? Are you like one of those Reuben children saying, I don't like God's plan for my life. I, I want it to be different. Or maybe you're like the people afterwards who don't understand God's purposes. You're one of those 14,700 people. Are you doubting God's purpose for your life? Do not be like the Hebrew children. Commit yourself to the sovereign will of the Father in all things, that you may find peace and comfort. Would you take a moment to consider that? What is God doing in your life? Would you commit to his goodness? Father, strengthen us to do so. Help us to see that you are a sovereign God, which means that you're in control of all things, whether it's our calling in our life, whether it's the plan for our life or in the purposes. Let us see your goodness, your wisdom in each of the three. Give us strength to be reminded. And Father, remove far from us a grumbling, complaining heart 
that may be filled with envy and jealousy and selfish ambition. But Father, would you humble ourselves and direct us to your thoughts. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you take your attention and read with me on the monitor in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Do you have that up there? Did I go too fast for you? I'm sorry, Ben. Okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Go, go where you were. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, the apostle Paul quotes from number 16 when he encourages Timothy, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let us do so this morning. Would you stand with us? The elders will be up front at the end of the service. If you'd like to know more, how you can know Christ as Savior, how you can repent of your sin, what that even means, or maybe you would just like prayer and your plan, the calling and his purposes. Landon will be up here at the front near the end. Stand with us. How firm a foundation as we just rest in the good purposes, plans, and callings of a sovereign king. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.